Okay, open your Bibles to John chapter 1, as we talk today in a new Advent sermon series, Eternal King is Coming to Earth. And as I said, it is Advent, so now uh, Thanksgiving is done. Everybody have a good Thanksgiving? Yep. So now it is officially socially acceptable to get ready for Christmas, right? But I know that some of you didn't really need to wait to when it was socially acceptable, did you? So we're going to play a little game if you want to play a little game with us. If you, I'm going to have everybody stand if you want to stand, play the Christmas game. When did I start decorating for Christmas? So if, let's have everybody stand up if you want to play the game. Only if you want to play. If you don't want to play the game, you don't have to stand. All right? If, if you, quote, only began decorating for Christmas after Thanksgiving, so in the last two days, sit down. All right? So, okay, you guys are out. Okay, if you only started after Thanksgiving. If you started at least at least one week before Thanksgiving, you can keep standing. If not, you have to sit down. One week before, okay? Two weeks before. So we'll say from we'll just say from November fifteenth. If you started decorating any time later than November fifteenth, you got to sit down. Uh oh. Uh oh. Down to four. Wes, are you playing too? You playing? You're in. Okay. November 8th. November 8th. Oh, look at this. This is some Titans right here. These are some Christmas Titans. All right. I don't know. You might not remember the exact date, but we'll estimate. We'll take on honesty. November 5th. November 4th. Oh. Down to three. November 3rd. November 2nd, November 1st, October 31st, we have a winner, we have a joint winner, okay, can we give it up for these two ladies, November 1st, and we're not waiting for December to come around, they start November 1st, you win an extra prize of congratulations, good job, good job, all right, so let's look at John chapter 1 as we start a new sermon series here today. In some traditional church calendars, we don't typically, in our tradition, we don't always do this, but I think it's nice to recognize the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, traditionally called the Advent season, and the first week of Advent, depending on what calendar you might be looking at, uh, we're, we're looking at the topic of hope. And at the time of the first coming, the Jewish people were hopeful and expectant that a Messiah was going to come to earth. Now, the people who were looking for the Messiah, those faithful Jews that were looking, had a little different idea of who and what the Messiah was going to be. They were expecting a very earthly king, a very earthly king who was fully human like you and I, but who was going to come from the line of David, who is going to sit on a very literal earthly kingdom throne, who is going to establish the kingdom of Israel once again, who is going to overthrow the Romans, and who is going to lead the Jewish people into a renewed era and period of political nationalism. That's what they were expecting, those who were actually looking. Of course, what came was something much different, but oh, so much better. In fact, an eternal king instead came to earth. As we're going to talk about a little bit, 
the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God Himself, who Himself is the eternal second person of the eternal Trinity, came to earth, lived among us, and as we're going to see in John chapter 1, the Word of God became flesh. That who was in the beginning came to live and dwell among you and I. So something far better than just an earthly king. Yes, a king who is in the line of David, Jesus Christ, came to earth. One of the reasons that the Gospel of Matthew, the first gospel, we're in the fourth gospel of John, that the first gospel of Matthew starts with a genealogy is that it is showing the lineage of Jesus Christ. It is showing that from the earliest times, uh, Luke's gospel traces all the way from Adam, Matthew's gospel start by showing that Christ is in the line of Abraham. He is from the line of promise, where God says to Abraham that your descendants will be like sand on the seashore. I'm taking you from where you are, and I'm going to make you a great nation. God does that, and then begins the Jewish people. And then we see that Christ is from the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. He's from the line of King David. God made a promise to David that one of your descendants will always be reigning on the throne of Israel. So again, you can see why the people were looking for a king the way you and I might expect it to look. But Christ, in fact, was from the line of Abraham. He was from the line of David. In fact, He is always going to be metaphorically sitting on the throne at the right hand of the Father. When we think of Christianity, primarily we think of, rightly so, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The death of Christ on the cross, which we celebrate on Easter, right? And His, well, on Good Friday, and then His resurrection on Easter. From that, we have hope. From that, sinners have salvation. But He rose again. He died, he came back. But you know what? There wouldn't have been a second, there, there wouldn't be the expectation of a second coming in the future if there was not a first coming. If Christ didn't come to earth to begin with, he wouldn't have lived and died. There wouldn't have been Calvary if there wasn't Christmas. So that is where we begin our Christmas story that the people were hopeful that a king was coming and an eternal king came to the earth. Now, let's read our passage, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. And it reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made, that which has been made. In Him was life, and that life was in the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born 
not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We pray, God, that You would speak to us during this time and encourage us from Your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, in the Gospels of Matthew, or the Gospel of, of Matthew and Luke, we have accounts of the birth of Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark, we just start with Jesus' public ministry. And sometimes people say, well, we have the earliest narrative of Jesus in Matthew and Luke, but that's actually not true. Actually, John goes before all of creation. He starts out his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word. Now, what, what is it? why do we see the word capitalized, Word? Well, that's the Greek word that's being used here is the word lagos, or logos, depending on how you pronounce it. Greek word lagos, and that was seen in Greek culture as the personification of truth and wisdom. So what the author, John the author here is doing, is taking that personification of truth and wisdom and applying it to Jesus Christ, and that's very clear from the context. So if you want to read this differently, you can just substitute the word Christ for word. In the beginning was Christ, and Christ was with God, and Christ and Christ was with God, and Christ was God. He was with God in the beginning, and now we're seeing a picture of the Trinity, at least as far as the Father and Son are involved. You see that the Son is co-equal to the Father. The Son has always been with the Father. The Son has eternally reigned with the Father. So, little baby Jesus didn't just start out as little baby Jesus humble in the manger. He pre-existed all creation. And Scripture says that all creation came through Him. So the first point that I'm going to make is that Christ is what we see from John 1. He is eternal. He pre-existed creation. In fact, He was the agent of all that was created. He was the agent of creation. We see that from John 1.3, Colossians 1.16. And I said earlier, He is the Alpha and the Omega. What does that mean, the Alpha and the Omega? Well, those are the first two letters of the Greek alphabet. And we see that in the book of Revelation. So in the Gospel of John, very possibly the same person who wrote John also wrote uh, Revelation. Might be the same John that wrote both. So it is saying he's the first and the last. There is nothing before him. There will be nothing after him. That is the major focus of John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And then if you continue on in this passage, before I'm going to just give you a brief overview of the passage that we just read here. Again, verse 3, through him all things were made. All of creation hinges on the Word, the Lagos, the Christ. Everything hinges on him. In him was life. He is the source of life, just like for us, he is the source of eternal life. He is the great sustainer of life and light and wisdom. And when it talks about the light shining in the darkness, you have to remember that in that time, the people were living in spiritual darkness. It was a almost depressing time to be alive for the Jewish people. You know, just maybe about 150 years before the birth of Christ, there was a little glimmer of 
social and political hope when there was a Maccabean revolt, a rebellion that gained the people some limited independence, and that's where the holiday of Hanukkah comes from. But of course, even after all that, the people continued to live under the rule of the Antiochian Empire, and then later the Roman Empire, who then ruled with an iron fist, allowed the Jewish people to worship, but yet still keep a thumb on them. And as we saw with Jesus, anything that would be seen as a threat to the empire was looked to be stomped out, stamped out, persecuted. And keep in mind, many of these people, them and their forefathers and their forefathers, had been awaiting the arrival of the Messiah for generations and generations and generations. Literally centuries and centuries. In fact, we just uh, had our uh, reading by Pastor Stephen earlier from the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah was written hundreds of years prior to the Gospel of John. Literally hundreds of years. Think about that from our context. How long has America been a country? What is the math? It's a few hundred years, right? A couple hundred years. More than double that amount of time was when the book of Isaiah was written. And they were hoping and expecting this Messiah, but yet to them it didn't come. And they were wondering, will it come? Is it going to come? And some people began to lose hope as they languished under these various respective empires. But then the light came into the world. And I encourage those of you who will be around on Christmas Eve, join us. Christmas Eve, 6 to 7 p.m., we have our annual candlelight service. As at the end of that service, we always give a visual illumination of what it was like for the light, for the truth to come in to the world. And that light that gives us light is Jesus Christ. And it talks about then in verse 10 that he was in the world, you know, the world is made through him, but the world didn't recognize him. How depressing would that be if you woke up tomorrow and your own children whom you've loved, whom you've cared for, who you've raised, looked at you and had no idea who you were? Wouldn't that be disheartening? And how frustrating would it be if these same children that you loved, cared for, and literally would die for aren't just bratty, aren't just unappreciative, but would look to persecute you and put you to death. The creation is revolting against the Creator. But Christ comes for His own, His children, those who would receive Him. Verse number 12, Yet all do have received Him and believed in His name. He gave the right to become children of God. This was not limited to one gender, one race, one socioeconomic class. This is all who would believe. Which is why we see in Paul's writings that who is the child of Abraham? Is it somebody who is just born into it genetically or biologically? No, a child of Abraham is somebody who has faith in Christ. Who is the child of God? It is Jew and Gentile. Gentile is anybody who's not a Jew. Jew and Gentile united in Christ. And as we see in the Gospels, Jesus, yes, He reaches out to His people, the Jewish people. 
but within the Jewish people, rich and poor, young and old, men and women, slave and free. The very first individual, as I talked about last week, that he appeared to was a woman. That was revolutionary even in its own right in that period of time. But all of us who believe, and it says your children not by natural descent or not just because you married into it, but you're born of God because the Holy Spirit has done something supernatural in your life and in your heart. How did that happen? Because an eternal king came to earth and eventually gave his life for you and for me. Do you think that our today's rich and noble and powerful and kings and presidents and so on and so forth, do you think they're looking to literally give their life for you? Don't count on it. And we put our hope and trust in only one who can atone for the sins of the world. There was only one eternal sacrifice, as we're going to talk about shortly, that can make that possible. Then in verse 14, again, the word, this Greek concept of this personification of wisdom and truth that's now being applied to Christ. The word became flesh, meaning that God came in the world in the flesh. It's kind of wild when you think about it. We're going to talk about that in a second. And made his dwelling among us. Literally, God dwelt among us. In the Old Testament, you had the tabernacle and then the temple, and only the high priest could go in the Holy of Holies and be in the presence of God the Father. Now, you had God the Son being born and living amongst His people. And today, you have the Holy Spirit since the day of Pentecost that has been poured out on all people that is present anywhere at all times, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So again, we see, again, the Trinity in action here, the Father and Son working and co-equal, working in tandem with one another. Now, let's talk about some of the rich theology that exists here. Point number two, Christ is this eternal king. He is, I'm going to call it the God-man. That almost sounds like some type of superhero, but I'm just trying to explain some things theologically. Before I say what that does mean, let's talk about what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Jesus was half man and half God. It doesn't mean that he was just a man. You know, you'll hear this sometimes. Well, Jesus was a good man. He was a good teacher. He was a good rabbi. He was this, he was that, or maybe he was just some political revolutionary. No, the eternal king who came to earth was far more than just those things. And I also say he was not just divine. He wasn't, sounds weird to say this, just God. wasn't just some divine being that came and dwelt among us, looked human but wasn't, acted human but wasn't. He was fully God and fully man. And he didn't, like, become born and then later become divine, as some theologians taught over time. He came into this world divine. Now, let's talk about what it does mean if we continue to go on. You can cross-reference these Scripture verses, but I'm also summarizing some 
good biblical and historical theology here. It does mean that the eternal king has two eternal and distinct natures, his humanity and his divinity. But we don't want to overly segregate those two things. It, they were both a, a part of him. One was not, you, you couldn't have one without the other with Christ and, and at the incarnation. What is the incarnation? That is when the Word became flesh, when God was born into this world. He became flesh during the incarnation. So Jesus existed prior to the incarnation, prior to the first coming, as we see from John 1, 1 and elsewhere. He existed before that, but He became flesh. He also entered into His humanity at the time of the incarnation. Now, what does that mean? Is we, if you'll remember from our, if you're around uh, about a year and a half, two years ago for our Hebrew sermon series, it means that God, God the Son, has literally walked in your shoes. Have you thought about that one? In Christianity, we teach the concept of a personal God, a God that you can have a relationship with, one that is not just remote and far off, that has uh, is so far high and up there, and, and we're so far. To, yes, He is, but He's also connected to us, personal with us, communicates with us. People like to scoff at that. What is the old saying? That if you talk to God, it's prayer, but if God talks to you, you're crazy. Have you heard that one? If you talk to God, it's prayer, but if God talks to you, that means you're crazy. And that's a little funny way of just glorifying some beefed-up deism. What is deism? Deism is the concept that God exists, God set things into motion, but He's not active or involved with you or I. That's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that God is intimate and personal in our lives, and the Holy Spirit speaks to us and leads us and guides us, and that when Christ walked this earth, literally walked this earth, He did, in fact, walk in your shoes. As we're going to look at the attributes of God and man. If we, why don't we just go down to that? We're going to look at each side here. Well, let's start with His humanity, as I'm just talking about here. Well, He worshipped God the Father. Well, why did He worship the God? Why did, if He was God, why did He worship God? He's setting an example for us of how we are to worship. And though the Son is fully God, he is also separate and distinct in essence, or not in essence, he is separate and distinct from God the Father, but they are part of one essence. Now you say, that sounds confusing, because it's God. If you could fully formulate everything about God in your limited human mind, you've now put God in a box. Okay? But he was also called a man. He was called the Son of Man. That didn't just represent his humanity, but also his divinity as well. He prayed to the Father, giving us an example. He was tempted. Now, people get all weird about that. How can the Son of God, how could God in the flesh be tempted? Well, temptation is not sin. He was tempted in all ways that we are, but sin not. So that means all the natural ways that you experience temptation, Jesus Christ dealt with that as well. What do you think? Jesus was not ever tempted to smack his disciples silly when they were getting on his nerves after living with them for three and a half years, and they didn't get anything. What do you think? He wasn't tempted to get a little bit upset here and there? But not just in that way. He was tempted in all ways that we were, but sinned not. 
With the incarnation, he grew in wisdom. He hungered. He thirsted. When he was a baby, he wet his pants. All the different things that we go through as human beings. And he grows in wisdom and stature. By the time we get to Luke chapter 2, he's only a teenager, and now he's teaching the leaders in the temple. Obviously, he lived and he died. He had a body of flesh and bones, and he had marks to prove it. So, yeah, he was fully man, but he was also fully God. He's worshipped. Nobody is worshipped but God in Scripture, at least rightly so. He's called God in various portions. I'm just giving you a few references here. He's called the Son of God. Son of God does not mean a lesser being of God. It means that you were sent from and come from God. He's prayed to. What do you think? Ancient pious Jews would be praying to something other than God? That is absolute heresy. He's sinless. He's all-knowing. He knows all things. He gives eternal life. And it says the fullness of deity dwells in him. In fact, the only things that Jesus professed any amount of ignorance on was that which he self-limited himself on and, and would not give to his disciples in terms of the second coming, when that was going to take place. At least this side of the grave in the incarnation. So you get to see all these different attributes of Jesus that shows that, yes, He's fully God, but he's also fully man. And if you were to read John chapter 1, 29, if you were to skip ahead, John the Baptist, who's the forerunner, he's a cousin of Jesus, he's the forerunner of Jesus, he eventually baptizes Jesus, and Jesus is baptized to, again, show that something new is breaking, but also give us an, a model, an example to follow. In John chapter 1, verse 29, it says, The next day John saw Jesus come toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Point number three, Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. In the Old Covenant, again, I explained you had the temple that existed. Only the high priest could go in the Holy of Holies. You would have the Day of Atonement where you would have one sacrifice that would happen outside for the sins of all the people. There would be a scapegoat. That's where we come up with the concept of a scapegoat, where symbolically the high priest would transfer the sins of the people onto the scapegoat and lead the scapegoat out, and the people would hurl insults at the scapegoat because it represented the sins of the whole community. And then there would be another sacrifice that would take place inside of the temple, inside the Holy of Holies. And there's this whole elaborate system behind it, and we have this whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament where you had to bring out the spotless and unblemished animal because if it had any imperfections, it wouldn't be acceptable for a sacrifice because we don't bring our worst to the sacrificial table. God criticizes that in one of the prophetic books. Stop bringing me your lame and sick and blind animals. You're supposed to be bringing the best. And the people were bringing their leftovers. I am glad that we don't live in a covenantal age when on a regular basis we have animal sacrifice. I would not be able to be a minister at that point because even bugs creep me out. I don't like to sweat for more than 10 minutes before getting in a shower because that's dirty. I, I just wouldn't be able to do it. 
But all joking aside, there was some major symbolism behind all that. We often hear the phrase that freedom is not free. That the wages of sin, it says in Scripture, that's not in the Bible, but it says in the Scripture, the wages of sin are death. And there is a consequence of sin. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission or forgiveness of sin. Well, why has it got to be? It helps show us the deadly consequences of sin. And there are prices to be paid. And in the sacrificial system, it was symbolic, again, of something greater to come. There's not a single animal sacrifice that is going to save anybody's sins. The first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. He who was fully God and fully man gave his life on the cross. And he takes away the sin of the world for all those who believe. And as I talked earlier, we wouldn't have a second coming if there wasn't a first coming. There wouldn't be an Easter if there wasn't a Christmas. And as we lead up to Easter, if you wanted to flip to John chapter 19.30, going to point number three, this is Jesus on the cross. When he had received the drink, this is while he's hanging on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed and gave up his spirit. You might read that and say, well, that seems kind of bleak, kind of depressing, but it's not. When Jesus said it is finished, he's not just talking about, well, they got me, I'm dead. <clears throat> Once he gives his life on the cross, the atonement is taking place. Blood is being shed for your sins and for mine. And even right there in the immediate time, he gives his life, he takes his last breath, an earthquake happens, the guards who are guarding him fall backwards. There's an initial resurrection that we read about in the Gospel of Matthew. Some amazing things are taking place, and they try to put him in the tomb, and they take every step to guard the tomb to make sure that, in their words, nobody could get or steal the body, and death couldn't hold him. The sins of all those who believe could not hold him. The grave couldn't hold him. Christ is victorious. He achieved victory over death. And he achieves victory over sin. And that's a good thing for us because I know just on my account alone, there's more than enough to go around. In this room right now, there's more than enough to go around. Think about this, taking on the sins of the entire world. All people, all places, all times, all of us imperfect people. Christ lived and died for. So I say, therefore... Well, who is Christ to you? Now, you can say, well, to me, Christ is just a rabbi. To me, Christ is just a good person. To me, Christ was just a historical figure. Well, what we read in our passage for today in John 1 either is true or it's not. You ever meet somebody that believes objectively crazy things that everybody, you know, everybody's going to know it's some crazy stuff, right? And doesn't matter how 
passionately that person believes it or doesn't believe it. Wouldn't matter how passionately I didn't believe something that might be obvious to all of you that gravity exists. I gotta be careful because I want to break our microphone. It does. Whether I believe it or not. But I could sit and continue to believe my alternative reality, or as we like to say today, alternative facts. What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Who is Christ to you? In just a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. In our church, we practice what's called open communion, meaning you don't need to be a member of the church. You do need to be a member of the body of Christ. If you're not quite sure what you believe or why, it's okay. We're glad you're here. You can just simply let the elements pass if you'd like. Nobody's asking any questions or look at you funny. We're just glad everybody's here today worshiping, right? But it's a good time to think of these Questions. Who is Jesus Christ to me in my life for my family? What is my life working towards? So I ask in conclusion for this message Does your relationship with Christ match your theology of Christ? I just taught a new members class in my classroom or in my office, and I talked about as a part of that that you have a lot of people that know a lot of facts. They might know a lot about God, but they don't really know God. Here at Rock, we don't want you, we want you to know Scripture, but we don't want you to just be filled with facts or filled with information. There needs to be some relationship with God and then putting that faith into practice. And if you truly know who Christ is and the Holy Spirit is working with you, it is going to make a difference in your life and the lives of others and those around you and your family and your friends and so on. So does your relationship with Christ match your theology of Christ or do you even have? What is theology? Theology comes from the Greek word theos, which is a generic word for God. It is the doctrine of God, the knowledge of God. What do you believe as we're now entering into this Christmas season, this first week of Advent, and we have a little representation of here in Mary and Joseph and little Jesus What do you believe about that life-changing moment in history when Christ entered the world? And even more importantly, that life history-defining moment of the atonement, Christ living and dying for you and for me.